Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 352 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome. In this episode, I chat to Dave Wallin of White Noise Games about their VR-based RTS game, Eternal Starlight VR. Yes, yeah, right. It's an RTS game that's in VR. What could possibly go right? Well, everything, I hasten to add. Everything. You can mock, but no. You'd be wrong to mock. Eternal Starlight is an extraordinary game, extraordinary feat of actually creating an environment that feels like the future, where you'd actually manoeuvre your units by picking them up and then moving them into a spot where you want them to go, and then they go to that place, and it can rotate the whole map in full 3D. It's amazing. It's like Homeworld should have been. That's all I'm saying. Really, really entertaining stuff. Highly recommend it. Dave is a fantastic guest. Really goes into great detail about the trials and tribulations he had in making Eternal Starlight VR. And I hope you enjoy this show as much as I enjoyed making it. So, without further ado, let's listen to me, from the past, talk to Dave Wallin. Chris, take it away. Dave! Hello. Who are you and what do you do? <laughs> I am David Wallen and um, I've been a, a long time web developer and now with the release of my game uh, Eternal Starlight, I can call myself a game developer and um, that just released on the Oculus Quest store and on Steam. Now, I must confess, I've only ever played it on Oculus Quest 2. Um... And uh, which is not, you know, that's fine. I say confess. I mean, it's not only it's the perfectly fine platform to play on. It was designed for that very platform, I assume. Mm-hmm. Um, it runs wonderful, but uh, I do have a PC that also runs VR, and it's linked via my ridiculously powerful mesh Wi-Fi in my home, which I highly recommend. But boy, are they expensive, Dave. Anyway, um, is uh, allows me to run. Uh, Steam VR games via my Quest 2. Not even via a special hack or anything. It just It's all built in now. It used to be you had to be like, you know, developer and stuff. But now they've actually opened it up and they said, yeah, you can just run PS, uh, uh, sorry, Steam VR games on your Quest uh, headset. But I played it natively. Doesn't make any difference, but it does allow me to play other 
Steam VR games uh, like, for example, Half-Life Alex, which was my game of the year last year because it yeah. was a, you know, it's a, quite a thing, quite a thing. But uh, yeah, I am very familiar with VR. I've, I've had PSVR initially and then I just found, you know, finally upgraded my computer last year, about a year ago today, actually, um, just when the 30 series of graphics cards appearing which i didn't know i said well, i gotta upgrade my eight-year-old processor and everything so i just gutted it rebuilt it all and uh and uh haven't looked back or indeed yeah. everywhere because once you do that it, it, it's basically i tested it i mean i built it for the primary purpose so i could actually play vr games on it and wow does it <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, I've, um, i'm still rocking a 1080 on my uh desktop my son has a better computer than me right now he's got the 2060 <laughs> yeah it's i got a 2070 super but uh and i got that and then which i know is overkill for what i needed it to do i get that dave i get that but um i was just kind of future proofing not realizing the 30 series is coming out but then again who can buy them no one i know basically. you basically have to buy a whole computer just to get a graphics card now yeah, it's uh, it's like you go to a graphic, you go to a, a storefront, a virtual storefront, online storefront, and they are actually sitting there going, "We're selling nothing. <laughs> we have nothing to sell." <laughs> it's just like, wow. <laughs> and like, yep. you can buy a token which gives you a, a a ticket in a lottery to give you the right to buy something. Oh my god! What? <laughs> Yeah, I haven't even tried to upgrade. I mean, I want, like, ideally I should be upgrading now, but it's just, uh, I don't really want to spend that much money. No, I caught it just at the right time last year, but um, yeah, I built it and uh, yeah, I haven't looked back since. It's been a remarkable thing and it's helped me broaden my thing. And getting the the Quest VR set was important because it was, allowed me to have three platforms of VR, basically PSVR, uh, Quest um, VR, and Steam VR, so there you go, all in three bits. Yeah, so that's what most people are doing nowadays. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. So, Dave, how yes. did you make your start making video games? Hmm? <laughs> well, um, so I've been interested in video games since I was like really young, like six years old, let's say. Um, and uh, you know, I, I started out learning basic on my Apple II uh, computer that my dad gave me, and um. You know, messed around for a long time, didn't really get too far with uh with programming. But when I was a teenager, I started doing like mods for um for Quake Two, and um, had some some success for that. Had a had a, a lot of fun doing that. Um, there was uh I made three mods, which some people know, and you know it's it's funny with Quake. Um, people are like still playing those games. Like it's it's crazy. Um, Is like, it though? Still- is it? Um, <laughs> sorry, Dave. Sorry to cut off because I'm a big fan of Quake. You know, one of my favourite ports of Quake, and don't yell at me when I say this, please. But the original PlayStation, they did a port mm-hmm. of Quake Two on that. It's amazing, <laughs> truly amazing feat. Sorry, I cut you off there, but I just had to no, chip it's in fine. there. It's great. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, they ported that to everything, but they um... did. But yeah, that's what's what an achievement. Not a lot of warping textures either. How they did that, I don't know. Wizards <laughs> were involved. Wizards. I know. But you were building sort of mods for Quake 2, were you? Yeah, so um I did one called Coupong, which was like a um it's funny, it's kinda it's basically like Rocket Arena, 
but um, instead of cars, it's people. And when you um, shoot the ball, you can like crush people with the ball because it's like bigger, you know, it's like a huge ball. Um, and it was, it, you know, it's kind of like pinball where there's like flippers and, but you had to hit it in the goal and it was, you know, you're playing against the other team. But um, that one was, I got on, I won the PC Gamer Mod Contest for that. Uh, PC Gamer Magazine, that was, for those that remember. Actually, oh, yeah. I think they're, they're still around. But... It's still going. Um, yeah, still going. And that's the, Obviously, it's the US version, because it was the British version. Right. And uh, don't know if you know this, but there's actually a bit of, how can I put it, rivalry between the two. There's a lot of cultural clashes between the two, because they're both <laughs> called the same name by the same publisher, but they mm-hmm. have very different markets, very different, you know. And uh, yeah, there, there's lots of um, yeah issues between the two publications. It's that, funny. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? That uh, lasted for many, many, many years. But in the UK, we had a culture of of lots and lots of these magazines, and there was a huge rivalry between that and PC Zone. And mm-hmm. we've got time. It's uh, yeah, there were there, the, the 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 zoners had a bit of attitude. No, of they they edgy. A bit edgy. A bit of edgy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not. Not the Edge. That's another magazine, but the <laughs> Edge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My uh, my dad went on a business trip to the UK when I was a kid, and he brought home the 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 uh, PC Gamer UK version. And I yeah. gotta say, I like the uh, I like the English wit in that. Exactly. I might have might have preferred it even. Yeah. Um. There's a history as well with uh, British magazines. Uh, I could go on, but why not? I'll say it. But there was a magazine called Your Sinclair, which was very, very, very popular in the UK. And it started a trend of rather than being very factual and very sort of a little bit earnest, they just basically mocked everything about the whole culture of computer games and video games and stuff. And it just relentlessly mocked it and laughed at each other and just the whole culture around it and games and just became this whole thing. And from that, all the vast majority of magazines in the UK were just relentlessly trying to make people laugh constantly. And that can be quite tiring to read, but honestly, it's stuck, stuck with us to this day. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, that was Coupong I did. And then um, another, probably the more known ones are uh, Jailbreak, which was... Um, like there's two teams, and then um, if we, instead of dying, like when you kill someone, they don't just respawn; they they spawn in in your jail, and then the other team can come and rescue them and, and let them all out if they get into your base. Um, and that actually got released on the um, Netpack Extremity CD, which which id Software put out. It was I basically just a well I'm, collection I'm, of mods. I'm humbled. So, <laughs> so, yeah, so quite a because I still have period PCs. Um, Oh yeah. So I have a Windows 95 PC, I have a Windows 98 PC, and they're all made out of contemporary components. Although they're I say that, they're like really souped up. Like they're very if you actually bought them at the time, they'd be worth like six, seven grand. But <laughs> you know, so they're a little bit over oh, just a smidgen over the top, oh. but they still got the base technology that running. So you know that's awesome. Windows ninety five has got a Pentium one thirty three in it with, with thirty two megs of RAM. Don't be <laughs> stupid. I mean, it's just like no, no. That's like that's right at the edge of like no one has a machine like that to run. 95. Yeah, wasn't that more like uh, four megs around that time? It was like yeah, pretty standard. It, it was, yeah. But it's lovely having them because it means I can download these games. Well, I actually still have a lot of these games, like the, the Quake stuff. I've still got it all. Still got it all. And, nice. Yeah, I have it on CDs somewhere. But no, well done, sir. 
I mean, that's just that's a because that's right at the cusp of things, wasn't it? Right at the vanguard, I should say. Yeah, of, it was uh, a really fun time to be doing mods. Uh, I mean, it was yeah. I mean, those were like the first mods that were really like, you know, like everybody was playing them, and like there's just like such a great community around it and everything. Um, you know, I would get emails every day from people like being like, "Oh, this mod's so cool! Like, you know, you should do X, Y, or Z." And it's just like a, a fun experience. Yeah. I mean, he could have done Half-Life. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but that came from a mod, didn't it? We forget that, but it did really come from yeah. a Yeah, well, wasn't Half-Life based on uh, like Quake 1 source code Quake, or something like that? Something like that. I can't remember. It might have been Quake 2. I think I can't remember, but yeah. yeah. It was based on that engine. That's for certain. Right. Yeah. It's before Unity and Unreal and all that. Yeah, but they had to... I mean, it was the start of the engine creation, which right. is really interesting. Getting us away from assembly. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay. those are some of the first moddable games like, you know, that you weren't just like hacking them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then you, you moved on, clearly, from doing your mods. Yeah, and did those. You know, I, I wanted to go into game dev after after high school and like not go to college, but thankfully my parents talked me out of that. Um, after college, I worked on... Uh, this was like in around the dot com boom time. So I, I worked at a um, company that was doing kids games on the internet, um, like educational games. And then after that, I worked a bunch of more traditional jobs. And then, you know, here I am 15, 20 years later, uh, finally got around to doing a, a game myself. So it's, it's always kind of been like a, you know, a dream of mine to do it. So finally doing it. Fair play to you. And I'm really happy to have you on to see you return to a very different environment from what you remember maybe mm -hmm. you know if you, someone told you yeah there's this thing called steam you just on the you just chuck uh, games up onto it and people download them where's the publisher they're not there anymore <laughs> you know but they are but you know of course you know the fantastic publishers like uh, devolver digital and tiny build and all these people they, they've sort of found this place but you can self-publish too and it's, yep. you know, the barrier of entry has dropped massively. Maybe you could have predicted that, considering you were involved in the mod scene. You could probably see it coming. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. But um, I think the big year was 2007. Why do I cite that? Well, the iPhone arrived. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and uh, I did a I did a music app on the um, iPhone, iPad, and iPhone. So yeah, was, that was kind of uh, you know similar thing where like you could publish your own thing and see yeah. some success from it yeah and xbox live arcade as well we've got a lot to thank for that uh, <laughs> i think you know geometry wars right come on <laughs> I, st I still can forget it. i still play it to this day i think that was like the first steam game that i bought too yeah it's just one of the first twin stick thanks thanks robotron cheers cheers <laughs> anyway Next question. As a creator of things, Dave, and you are, whether you like it or not, what do you believe are your biggest influences? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of the those early games that I played growing up, like, you know, Doom and Quake, I played, like, all the Sierra point-and-click games. Um, XCOM was big. You know, I played some of the first RTS games, like Doom and Warcraft. Um I'm a big fan of Mass Effect. Like I love that game. Um, and then 
was also a pretty big fan of like FTL and like you know their their game after that into the breach. Um, like it's subset games that makes that, but um, that just re- that game re- like I always get inspired when I play other games, um, and like that game really inspired me to to want to try to do some you know do something similar like with a roguelike. Oh, and yeah, I don't. I can't remember definitely. if I said it, but also Star Control Two is a huge uh, influence on me. Again, this is the like the fourth or fifth time a guest has cited that particular game. <laughs> yeah, that um, game. Like, what is it? What, Explain. It's I mean, kind yeah. of. It was a just a really. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of like a revelation when I was a kid. Like, because um, it was like, you know, when you by today's standards, it's kind of antiquated in a lot of ways. Like, it's kind of slow paced, but. Um, you know, it was just, it was amazing because it had, like, this huge, like, they give you this huge star map, like, with the game, like, actually printed out. And that was the copy protection for it. But, you know, in in the game, there's this, you know, there's hundreds of stars you can go to. And, um, you know, you're free to to go anywhere you want and, like, do do things in any order you want. Like, um, I mean, not, you know, in practic- practicality, not any order, because there's, like, storyline things that you have to unlock to, to progress. But, um it just felt like it was one of the first like open world games in my opinion um and you know it was inspired by um elite before that i think it was but yeah, um because i'm of that age which i drew my my first sandbox game i'm not sure if it was i think it was it was elite mm-hmm. um and yeah uh, so it was, kind of, it was kind of like elite but with like a better story um well it had one <laughs> it had one, right? I mean, Elite was you just basically trying to get to Elite, which is you could do it in various different ways, and you had no. It's only that's the only goal just to mm-hmm. get to that rank. But by the time you just as you get past Deadly, because there's various ranks, and you got past Deadly, uh, in order to get to the Elite, you needed to do these missions in inverted commas, and right. these various missions were were quite ridiculous, if I may say, Dave. Uh, one of them had you chasing an invisible ship. Oh dear! <laughs> so yeah, I actually never played that, but I've I've seen screenshots and it does look pretty similar, like interface wise. But nice, yes, yeah, so it kind of combined like arcade, like fighting with um, you know, it the, like the coolest moments in the game were like when you first you know you're exploring and exploring, and then like all of a sudden you meet like another alien race, like in the like you know you like go to a system and there's like all these ships there, and you're like, whoa, there's there's people that actually live here. And like you can talk to them and ask them questions, and um, it had like a really good story. Like it drew from um, all different like sci-fi, like Star Trek, and um, you know uh, novels and all kinds of stuff. Like it it had like really good influences, and the creatures in it were all like super colorful and varied, and like each one had like totally different biology and like um, you know like uh, like personality-wise, just very different and like just had really good writing and like i i played that game for like a month like it took me a month to beat it like most games like you know i finish in like a, a couple weeks or something but that game like had so much stuff to explore and find and like it it just it ended up like just like engrossing me for a really long time and like you know the people that made mass effect actually cited that as one of their influences for the game too and you can kind of see it yeah yeah i'm actually replaying mass effect at the moment um because of the legacy edition and uh just doing like an hour a bit every now and again you know just nipping in because you can because you're so familiar with the whole it's still relatively instilled in my mind because it really mm-hmm. did have a massive impact and 
The first one's a bit clunky, my friend. It's yeah, worst inventory Ooh. system ever. Uh, it's just yeah, yeah. See, see, but it's wonderful. That's where you draw your thing. It's basically the art of others, the creation of others, and being inspired by that. Going well, if they can realize a world out of just very little resources, because that's the thing. Star Control Two was probably what Apple Two game, wasn't it? Or I, I think it was. It was on a so, bunch yeah. of platforms. Yeah. Um, I played it on the PC. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, and it was one of the first games that had like digital sound. So like it had, um, you know, like wave wave files. I guess you'd say. Right. Yeah. But uh, and they they actually came out of the PC speaker. I don't know how they did it, but huh. you know, you know, booting it up and like being like, wait a minute, did that like actually just talk? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because like at the time, there's nothing like that. No, 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 absolutely not. So. This moves on to our next question, which is, and this one can be quite hard to answer. That's fine. It will give you, I'll give you space to, to ponder. But um, what developer do you most admire in, in, in the industry, and why? Um, I mean, I, I'd have to go with either like John Carmack or like yeah. Sid Meier. I mean, I know it probably just speaks to my my Quake heritage, but um, you know, I think John Carmack's just like super smart and a great developer and i've always appreciated like how transparent he is and uh like you know down to earth and not afraid to like speak his mind um and then sid Meier, i i kind of like just his like development philosophy of like um you know looking for what's fun and and trying to you know strip away all the extra stuff and and focus on that and then some of his other tips like that he said like um just around like how to balance games. Like one of the thing that stuck with me is he said, like, um, you know, if, if you have a number and it's like not quite, you, you're trying to figure out like how much to raise it by, like double it or have it. And that's something that I've, I've done. Like, I, I feel like you get to uh, the right value for things a lot quicker when you do it that way, instead of just doing it like little increments at a time. Um, I, I, yes, I can relate to this uh, with, you know, working on making on role-playing games or trying to balance issues. Or It's all about, you know, what do you gain from doing the thing? Mm-hmm. Is it like, oh, I'm going to gain 2%? Right, of exactly. What? 2% of what? You know, Right, you got to, like, draw contrasts and, like, really yeah. emphasize things numerically, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, like, one thing that, that aggravates me about... um that game uh galactic civilizations or galsiv or whatever is that like every upgrade you get it's just one point better than the last one and it's, like there's no like gameplay difference <laughs> like yeah you know i feel like um yeah it's it, just boring getting two percent better every time you know what i mean yeah it's it, well their argument would be i suspect um well, it's it's success by a thousand cuts as opposed to death. <laughs> so eventually, and you know, I had encountered a similar thing with Assassin's Creed Valhalla. There's relevance to this. In fact, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, um, for whom we had the developers on late last year, it's very nice. And uh, but uh, I did finish it. Took me 140 odd hours to finish. Nice. And uh, um, it um, has a progression system, a skill tree. That's rivaled only by um, probably that uh, action adventure uh, RPG of the uh, no, it's not Pathfinder. No, 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 it's the other one. Anyway, point is, it will come back to me. But point is, every time I, I added a point to something, it would give me one percent. 
of additional thing. It was always tiny, tiny increments, right? Yeah. But by the end of the game, I had 450 of these points invested into this vast tree. And I was actually unstoppable by that. I was just this <laughs> juggernaut. I would be one hitting things. Like, yeah, I mean, I guess if you have a, a game that's 140 hours long, then it makes sense to yeah. have smaller increments. It's much smaller increments, but uh, yeah. That's and it, it, it's a good shout with John Carmack as well, an absolute genius. Who, yes, people focus his efforts on on Quake and indeed Doom, but he also pioneered two D platformers on DOS PCs. Do you know this? He's had a great career, yeah. Yeah, Commander Keen is that Commander what you're Keen, Yeah, because apparently I didn't know this because I was playing around the Amigas at the time. And uh, and Atari STs, which could do this natively through scrolling and custom chips, PCs couldn't do that. Uh, and he figured out a way of doing this sort of a sort of like a, a checkerboard tiling system that allowed the screen to scroll smoothly. Yeah. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we owe him a lot. We do owe him a lot. Whereas, like I said, all the other machines are just relying on custom chips because that's how it was done, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, interesting. Last question, then, of the first half, I hasten to add. What are you playing right now, Dave? <laughs> um, I don't have a ton of time to play games right now, but um, one game I am playing right now is um, Slipways, which is like a... Um, it's like... It's like if you took Master of Orion and, like, super simplified it, and, and also you're not playing against anybody. <laughs> um. It's uh, so like each planet. Have you played it at all or seen it or anything? No, the only forex, the recent forex I've played, and it is, I'm assuming it's a forex because you said it's Master of Orion, which is the granddaddy yeah. of them all. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is okay. No, I don't. I don't. I'm going to pick it up now because I love forex games, whether they be tabletop. It's like a casual forex game, I guess you could call it. Right, because I've only played Stellaris recently, or indeed the board game, which is Twilight Imperium. I've played those. Right. But, you know, that's where I am at. But I'm not one of these, like, you know, turning those up. No, definitely not. I'm, I'm intrigued. Is it on? What, what platform is it on? It's on Steam. Um, I okay. think, I'm not sure if it's still in early access or not, but hmm. yeah, it's just like a really, like if you kind of simplified it to the max, like each planet... Um, takes one resource and and makes one resource and you have to like kind of connect them up um so that each planet it like gets what it wants um in order to like get it to the next level okay um okay. and you know there's like a time limit it's not it's like there's not a lot of pressure in the game it's just like you're playing against like a clock to see how far you know how many points you can get but it, it's kind of like a puzzle game in that way because you're kind of looking for these like um you know things that are near each other that can you know, have this like synergy or they benefit each other kind of thing. And then th there's other like tech things that you can unlock that like give you special abilities that you wouldn't normally get, like um, being able to make paths that you couldn't normally make or like uh, getting bonus resources or, or things like that. Hmm. Okay. I'm definitely going to check this one out. It's probably on sale because, you know, unless it's um, like Factorio, which would never. <laughs> Never be on sale. <laughs> um, bless them. And it's right. They say, how much is the game? This much. When's it going on sale? Never. Oh, okay. You know, you know really? when you got something hot, you can uh, you can do that. You can do that. It's like that. It's, it's strident. Like, nope, 
this this is how much it costs. But yeah, I'll definitely check it out after we had our chat today. So, but I'll do it now because it'd be rude. Part two. But yeah, before show. before yeah. that, before we move on, the other game I played a lot was Hades. Oh. Before that, so which you know we yes. all know Hades. <laughs> yes, super giant games often mentioned in this. And in fact, the fourth question and response is often super giant. Uh, mm-hmm. They are there, and they've been on the show. I'm happy oh. to say, yes. I'm gonna have to watch that one. <laughs> so uh, yes, uh, fair for then when they did. Um, it, damn it, transistor. There you go. They came gotcha. for that one. Um, and I met them face to face because I go to Pax East and West, and they always go to Pax West. So when they, nice. When it used to go, so I don't mind traveling, my friend. It's perfectly fine. So second half of the show where we delve deep into eternal starlight. Dave, first question isn't a question merely, it's a request. Before we can talk about Eternal Starlight, you need to know what it is. So in your own words, off you pop, what is it? So it's, I always like struggle with what to call it because it's kind of a combination of things. What I'm calling it right now is a roguelike RTS. Um, Really, it's not like a traditional RTS because there's no like base building. Like it's really more of a tactics game, I guess you'd say. But nobody really knows what a tactics game is. Um, the other thing is, it's kind of inspired, like it's actually really similar to like a League of Legends kind of thing, where like you have a, you know, a few hero characters and they have special abilities. Like that, it's kind of more like in that style than like a, an RTS game. Again, it's you know a mouthful to use all these words, so I just call it a roguelike RTS. Um, it has permadeath. Um, you know, some people love it, some people hate it. Um, um, but it also has a storyline, so that's, uh, you know, it's revealed as you play, but um, you can, so there's like four or five different story arcs, and you can kind of do them in any order, so that gives you kind of some flexibility there. 
And then the missions have some randomness to them. So like the uh, the positions of the asteroids, the loadouts of the alien ships, things like that, those, those are randomized. And then also like the rewards you get. Um, and kind of you, you just do missions and, um, you know, build up your reputation and um, you get stuff to customize your ships and upgrade them and go from like one ship up to, you know, a small fleet of ships and, and, uh, and beat the bad guys. That's about it. Indeed. Now, what we haven't mentioned is the, it is a VR game, everyone. So. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, I should probably mention that. <laughs> yes, so uh, so it's not the average RTS. My first question relates to this aspect, but it is, it's available on platforms we'll talk about later. But you know, it's it is a VR game from the outset. So let's understand that, which will give context to my first design question, which is this: Eternal Starlight, which is an interesting name because technically speaking, that's not strictly true. <laughs> <laughs> Right? I mean, I'm talking yeah. about the, you know, laws of entropy and eventually the would it collapse in it. No one really knows how it's going to end, but it, uh, it signs point to it collapsing. Talking about universe here, collapsing mm -hmm. <laughs> in all itself, uh, probably. I think it does that. Anyway, that aside, Eternal Starlight. It uh, it's a 3D play field for an RTS, which is not common. And then we had it in Homeworld, kind of, although we didn't. <laughs> or did we? Because if you actually played Homeworld, certainly the first one, you get the impression that, oh, I can just go over this stuff, this asteroid. Oh, no, I can't. <laughs> you know, it gives the impression of a, you know, a Z-axis, but there's more to 3D than simply knowing that there's a another axis, there's three axes, as far as just two. But, um, yeah, it doesn't really work that way. But they did try. But in Eternal Starlight, you definitely embraced it, as you like, you should. But yeah. how is that... Uh, it's not very common, as I said, in RTS games. What aspect of the design of the game has uh, been impacted by the implementation of the third dimension? Yeah, I mean, it's um, that's definitely one of the hard parts. Um, you know, not only because it's conceptually more difficult. Like if you know, in a flat game, you ha you can plan. You know, oh, I'm going to come in from the left or the right, but now you have to worry about top and bottom and and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I kind of simplified things a little bit. Like I, you know, I, the ships have four directional armor instead of six directional armor, um, and you know, you can move in any direction. You can move up and down. Although I I gotta say I took some steps to kind of um, keep things more in a plane um, because uh, you know the reality of VR is there's there's a couple things. I mean, so you're a person standing in a room, which is you know a plane basically. Um, so, you know, you wouldn't want things too far above your head and, uh, or like under your feet. Um, cause like the normal way that a person looks is kind of left and right, but not usually up and down. Um, so there's like some subtle things that I do to keep it more in a plane, but you know, the ships aren't actually limited. Like they're all physically simulated and, um, you know, there's, there's physics and there's no, nothing, no hard limits on which direction you can go or anything like that. You know, Homeworld struggled with that a lot. Like, I think I feel like a lot of their interface things were just to deal with the fact that it was on a a two D plane or two D screen, I should say. Yeah, um, yeah. Like they had to do all that stuff with like first you pick the X and Y and then you pick the Z, and you know it's just kind of clunky. And in VR, like that's all kind of naturally solved. Like you don't have to do anything special to do three dimensional stuff. Um, 
Probably the biggest challenge with VR, honestly, is not the fact that it's 3D, but the fact that it's uh, the attention economy, you know, like, um, you know, things can be happening all around you. Um, You're not just looking at a screen and keeping everything like in front of you. Um, You know, you could have things behind you. You could be looking at a ship um, close up and something could be happening far away. So like the biggest challenge is like, how do you like surface information so that the player um you know knows what the important things that are going on at the right time and um you know is able to take action and and not feel like confused or like they're you know missed something important like you know their ships died and they didn't even know why like those sorts of things um like one thing i do is like i really try to limit the amount of ui stuff that's that's popping up at one time um so like i have like a you know, like the hit points and armor and all that stuff. Like there's, there's quite a lot of information to show on the ship. Um, it's not just like homeworld where you just had one health bar. It's like there's shields, armor, hull, and then like direct, you know, the armor is directional. So, um, you know, you have those, all those progress bars. So, you know, I have the, the ship UI only pops up like as a ship is taking damage. Um, and then assuming you're kind of like, it favors like the ones, like if you're looking in that direction, it will, it will show it, but not necessarily like, have a million of them popping up all over the place if you're not even looking there. Um, what else? So, you know, I, I really, I really tried to simplify things. So, like I mentioned, like keeping the armor to only four directions. Um, you know, like I, I had played around with like for the special abilities, like having energy and like other, um, you know, like ship stats that would play into it. But I ended up kind of taking those out because it was just like too much information for the player to juggle. Um, and keep track of like when you're when you're in VR. Yeah, you're right. It's it can be very quickly overwhelming, and there's lots of different ways that games address this. Because rather than you having a detachment from the screen because you are sitting in front of it looking at a two D plane, and then then you have to project that view into the screen. You're actually in the screen. That's mm-hmm. the point of VR. You're actually in the environment that you're that you're interacting with and that be very easily become very overwhelmed because you think well look the screen is rather than this 2d thing it's actually this whole wraparound experience and therefore it's okay for me to put things like way above the person's head or way below and like no because they're not going to look up to look at that unless they're told to or there's some trigger to say now, maybe they should look above. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> you know, yep, or exactly. indeed, you know, and it works with the games like uh, Rogue Squadron or no, no, Squadrons, the Star Wars game, which is both 2D plane, but also principally a VR game, which I've played on PSVR and, and PC. And it's the same experience, but you know, having been able to look around and being able to see the other enemy ships just by looking around and then mm-hmm. pointing, you know, um, doing visual scanning, if you like, and go, oh, look, there's there's a TIE fighter. I'll just go after that one. And that's that's quite, and that's fine because it's a, you're in a cockpit, that environment is fine. But in with Eternal Starlight, that's more, it's more Ender's Game, isn't it, really? Uh, kind of stuff where you're in a, a, a battle simulation uh, engine thing that you're not actually, uh, you know, floating around in space, but you're actually pointing at things that are floating around in space and you're mm-hmm. grabbing them and moving them like chess pieces, only in 3D. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's quite quite impressive, uh, and also quite. Uh, it sounds quite daunting, but your your onboarding, your tutorials are very good. 
they do a really good job of uh, explaining the basic principles. The idea of Zoom by you to sort of clench your fists and move them in and out to, like a concertina player. Right. That's a really, really clever way of looking at it. And this leads on very neatly to my next question. Uh, The interface to Eternal Starlight is akin to the now infamous Minority Report, or indeed, if you're more literary um, bent, although they did make a film which wasn't particularly good, the uh, Ender's Game um, (laughs) interface where you are interacting with various objects by pointing at them, grabbing them and that kind of thing, telling things to do things rather than actually doing them yourself. Yep. I also have to ask, how, how many iterations, what kind of things did you experiment with to arrive at the interface you have now with uh, Eternal Starlight? Yeah, so like um, going in, like, you know, one of the things I, I realized was that like, you know, a lot of VR games and even still today, like, um, the primary way of interacting with interfaces is like you point at something and, and you can interact with it, which is good because you don't need to be directly touching it or, you know, close enough to, to touch it or whatever. But, you know, when you're in space and there's no backing to things, that's not really an option to point at them. Um, especially if you have like a tiny ship that's far away, it could be very hard to hit it with a ray and see, you know, interact with it that way. So, I decided that I I wanted to really go for like an interface where you had to like um, directly interact with things, like reach out and touch it with your hands. Um, so, you know, that led to, and I wanted to like keep that consistent through the whole game, not just like have one interface for combat and then a different interface that you had to learn for like when you're on your ship and managing your inventory and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of came up with this way of interacting with things. And I, I should also back up that like, um, you know, I started development like in 2016. So, I mean, I've, I've been working on the game for a good five years now. And, you know, in the very early days of VR, there was no standards for for anything, um, especially not for like complicated interfaces and stuff like the kind that I wanted to do for this game. Um, you know, a lot of the games were just like embodied games where, you know, you had a gun, you're shooting at things and any UI was just like to to pick your level and that was it. But you know, with a game like Eternal Starlight, like the game that you're playing is the interface. So, um, you know, I wanted the interface to to not just like get the job done, but I wanted it to let like feel really cool and futuristic. And like, you know, yes, there may be like some simpler ways of doing things that aren't as flashy, but like, you know, the I feel like in VR, like the experience that you get from playing the game is like a big part of why people play VR, I guess. Um so yeah, long story short, to, to circle back and answer your question, um, yeah, the the scaling, the zooming in and out, the scaling, um, that was like one of the first things that I I did, and you know I felt like it was really unique and like could be like a kind of a hook for the game, and um, actually, well, I mean it was based on like the pinch gesture like on a phone, like when you're trying to zoom in on an image, like it's it's literally the same thing, but like in three dimensions. Um, yeah, but, um, you're in the picture. That's the exactly. Thing, you know? Exactly. Just, what I love about that, like, I love sort of like zooming right out and go, okay, look, what's going on? What are you mm-hmm. doing over there? That was my constant thing. <laughs> well, why are you? Do- I didn't say that. I did, but <laughs> that's the thing about you know computers. They only do what they tell them to do, like, especially programming. I didn't tell you to. Oh no, I did. <laughs> <laughs> There's that semicolon. Damn. Yep. <laughs> and there's that bracket that I failed to close. Oh, <laughs> sorry. 
anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, well, it's, I, yeah, cool. I, I did that pretty early on, and it was I. I kind of kept it secret for a while. I didn't like post any pictures or videos because, like, I thought no. I knew that, like, as soon as I did that, people would kind of copy it. Yeah, um, and really, the the only games for a long time that did that were like um, tilt, like Tilt Brush had it, but nobody really applied it to uh, to any other games. Uh, but now you can see like DeMeo and like a bunch of other games have, have pretty similar uh, control schemes. Yeah, but you're in space with this one. So anyway, that's right. Fire. I mean, this is a tactical question because this is an RTS, but with a heavy tactical bent. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, not every game has to be this grand strategy thing. Okay. Um, if you want that, go and play Total War. Now, sush. Now, um, firing of special weapons, which, you know, I'm trying to be dance around content because one of the things about this show is we don't like to delve too much about content for fear of spoiling anything. Yeah. But there are most ships, well, there are special weapons you can buy to upgrade, which we'll talk about later. But they are like they have a cooldown. Of course they do, because there's battle, and that's why they're you know. But um, I found that you have to fire them off just the right time. It's best to draw the enemy in, and with you know regular fire, and then unleash hell, so to speak. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. How do you? How have you found effectively communicating to the player uh, of Eternal Starlight that um, they really need to? know that oh, yes they've got this ridiculously powerful weapon but it uh, takes a while to fire again and uh, they need to know you know basically optimum play what the kind of things have you helped or have you done to hint at the player to encourage certain behaviors over others yeah i mean i think um the the hardest thing with this type of game is like there's so many different items you can get it's just like communicating like what they all do and like um, you know, what they're good for, like which ones are better than other ones. Um, and I think a lot of that is like kind of the, what makes uh, roguelike games fun is that like you, you can keep playing and keep trying out different combinations and it, you know, experiencing new things and new gameplay, um, with each run of the game. Um, but, you know, I mean, game, you know, in terms of indicating it, like, um, there's kind of like a, a status thing that will show up under each ship that says like what, what kind of debuffs the, uh, I have been inflicted on them and um you know the most of the specials do at least one kind of debuff and some of them work better together and some of them work better um with certain weapons um so but I didn't I don't like explicitly tell the player like hey you should do this and and then this um like to me like one of the coolest experiences about FTL was like playing it for the first time and like your ship gets on fire and then you're you realize that like you can open the airlocks and that puts out the fire and like nobody told you to do that, but you, you figured it out cause you, you kind of put two and two together. And like, I, I wanted to kind of have like a lot of, you know, nuances like that, that people could kind of just discover through experimenting. And I don't know if I was a hundred percent successful, but like there's, there's a few little tricks you can, you can do that like, aren't like super obvious the first time. Like for instance, there's like one ability that where you can push things, um, and you know that can be good to like push enemies away, but like you can also like push asteroids into other ships or like push two ships into each other and make them crash into each other. Um, and then there's like a, a hack ability, which like um, when you use it on an enemy, it it makes them shoot other enemies. Um, but like if you use it on fighters, they actually join your team and and you can keep them um, for the rest of the game. 
So there's just like some little things like that that aren't obvious, but like I think like if you figure it out, it's kind of like a fun, uh, you know, yeah. Easter egg type thing. I did like that. So I thought to myself, oh, I'm playing Gallagher all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Because I, I do that. I know purist Gallagher players go, no, you've got to time that just right. No, as soon as I can do it, as soon as I can, because you get that lovely spread of fire. Anyway, that aside, that aside. Um, no, it does a wonderful job, it being Eternal Starlight, does a wonderful job of communicating to the player only so much, but allowing for some self-discovery. You don't spoon-feed too much. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, the game is quite unusual in a good way that there's going to be some spoon feeding like look i know you're in a weird space right now and this is kind of mental but bear with me this is what you can do and then eventually once you find the 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 interfaces interactions between all the components at their base level you then start pushing those boundaries and that's where it gets really exciting and i think you've done a good job of balancing that so thank you oh thank you now it would be in a roguelike um it wouldn't be the same if you can't upgrade or do some improvements to whatever you're controlling, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the that's the, the thing. And when you're flying around these fast starships, there's the the upgrade tree and then that kind of thing. Um, oh, that's the name of the name of the game now, Path of Exile. There you go. Um, oh. That that's that's a tech tree for or, or from hell. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, if you have, if you're not familiar with this, look up Path of Exile. You know skill tree and just marvel at it and then cry because it is just absurd and they they the whole game is built around that and i'm just thinking what kind of thing you've done with the upgrading of the ship in eternal starlight uh, there's a definite sense of, of progression which you earn more coin from doing these missions for various factions that are around proxima which is the planet you're sent to protect mm-hmm. and um what have you done in the design of Eternal Starlight, to ensure the player is aware of these upgrades and of their importance in order for them to progress, because if you don't, everyone, if you don't, think, uh, if you don't exploit the, the progress in Eternal Starlight, you will be punished, because eventually <laughs> gets to a point where you cannot complete a mission unless you invested some some hard earned cash. So, what 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 have you done to to Subtly, or indeed not so subtly, advise the player that maybe they should upgrade those engines. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I haven't, I don't do anything like explicitly like saying, hey, you should do this. I know some games like really like kind of hold your hand a lot. This isn't really a game where I hold your hand, maybe to, maybe to its detriment. But I mean, I think like naturally, like, you know, you will get items like when you kill bad guys, and then obviously you'll want to put them on your ship, but then you'll see that it's locked and you have to you know, unlock the slot first and then you can put the item in and, you know, your ship starts out pretty slow. So that's, I think naturally you, you feel that frustration and you're like, all right, how can I make this ship faster? And then you can see, all right, there's, there's speed upgrades and all this sort of thing. So, and I think, um, you know, the fact that like after each mission, it kind of sends you, you know, you're on the bridge and that's like one of the main things you can do is, is look through your fleet and repair and upgrade and do all that stuff. So I think just by virtue of, uh, the game taking you through that part, you know, of the interface, it encourages people to spend some time. And to me, that that's like the fun part is like strategizing and, um, you know, trying out new combinations of things and all that stuff. I do like the fact that you can move the interface around in that mm-hmm. you have this desk 
it's in front of you this sort of like control touchscreen panel it's like the ipad only seven times larger and it's just <laughs> like you know and you can lift it up and pull it across and rotate i actually found myself just angling it in such a way that's most comfortable for me it's great yeah Really yeah, I mean, people's uh, people's VR setups vary so much. I mean, um, it's re- it really is necessary. And I've been told it's kind of like a, this is how every game should do it. But um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I wanted to be able to support like people sitting, standing. You know, some people even want to play laying down or like on the couch or something. And, you know, if you want to do that, you really have to be very flexible with how the uh, interfaces can be positioned. Indeed. And uh, I mean, I play standing up. I like standing up. When VR, even in games like in um, Star Trek uh, Bridge Crew, uh, which is actually designed to really sit down, <laughs> it doesn't encourage you standing. But I don't care. It's like, no, I like to stand. I feel it feels really good when you're playing Squadron like that, standing. And Total Starlight seems to be designed for a standing desk kind of experience. So uh, yeah, I definitely spent. Yeah, that's how I usually play, and I definitely yeah. like kind of did it that way although you know i did spend a lot of time like if i'm working on it like a, a lot of the times i'm sitting down so yeah had to, had to work that way too <laughs> standing is good for you i'd say you know it moving around it is actually quite good for you um, we might so, as well get some exercise you know yeah exactly so um and um, some of the games i've been playing is like this uh there's this racquetball game i've been playing on it and uh that's quite fun although i did smash the control into my fridge because my <laughs> vr space my VR space is my kitchen. I live in London, my friend, and we don't have very big uh, flats yeah. or apartments. I know you know this. Uh, I tried it, to it, play uh, Forever Bowl, and I didn't have enough space, and I ended up knocking a few keys, keys off my keyboard and like yeah. knocking my laptop off the table. Yeah, Not one of my finest moments. No, no. It, they do warn you. But you go, oh, I'll be fine. They do, yeah. You're like, ah, I, I know where the edges are. Yeah, then I, then I, then I did reduce my Guardian section and then it's fine because i couldn't move because every time i tried to move these big red circle things appear like what are you doing i'm oh, sorry <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to smash your hand against it the controller was fine it's a bit out of steel i think but uh yeah my hand wasn't <laughs> i mean the but controllers are expensive so they they are they are your hand will heal that that will yeah there you go <laughs> eternal starlight uh, which is uh, developed by White Noise Noise Games, which is a great name. But thank way. you. Where did where did you get it from? Um, so I've been using that name online since I was like a a teenager, and then I I did um I had White Noise Audio, which was my iPhone. Um, I made a music app actually, and then it was just a natural transition to go to White Noise Games. Continue yeah, the trend. Absolutely. When I think of that, I just think, oh, Poltergeist. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Or a really bad movie, which I haven't seen. Yeah, yeah, but I just think, oh yeah, the little girl in the telly. Yeah, that that was that was not at all scary or frightening or disturbing in any way. Yeah. Oh boy, maybe I'll maybe I'll use that as like my um like logo for my game. It's just yeah, I'm sure television. There's no copyright. <laughs> yeah, just a TV, <laughs> just with aerials sticking out, which no one has anymore. Um, yep. But uh, yeah, and then also white, yeah. No one had. Yeah, it's the thing, isn't it? Nowadays, like, what's that strange thing? And why is why is the television first of all emitting light? Why has it got this fuzzy peak pattern on it? No one does that. If it's yeah, there's a there's a. Thought, it's, don't get it. it. Don't get it anymore. Kids ask your parents anyway. 
Um, do you want to tell us what platforms is out on? Because uh, historically, I got this wrong once and got into trouble. So I'll let sure. you do this. <laughs> yep, it's on uh, it's on Steam and it's on um, the Oculus Quest Store um, and it's on Rift too. Um, there should be cross buy, so if you buy it on Quest, you can play it on the Rift. Yeah, but yeah, and it will probably be coming to Viveport at some point as well. Nice. Um, and. Uh... Yeah, it works on the Quest 2, by the way. Then again, if it's Quest, it works on Quest 2. Yeah, so. Quest 1, Quest 2, any yeah. PC VR. That's yeah. your good deal. Yeah. Oh, it's been an absolute delight having you on the show, Dave. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I hope you had some, some fun. I know I did. And I sure did. You're more than welcome to come back and chat about yeah. your next thing, whatever that may be. Maybe it's I would love to. a jailbreak. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad idea. It's not, is it? Could have just given me my next game. Yeah, worth well, well a blizzard, right? That's what I'm just saying. <laughs> but on that note, thank you very, very much. All right, thank you. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash cane and rinse for early extended and exclusive podcasts find us on twitter facebook instagram twitch youtube and at our website cane and rinse.com <laughs>